The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. monument stands in Renfrew County by the banks of Ontario's Petawawa River, where three steel sculptures bend gracefully towards a stone inscribed with the names of over two dozen murdered women. The women's monument commemorates lives lost at the hands of men since 1969, and in 2016, it added three more. Join me now as we remember the stories of three women whose lives became entangled with a vicious and vengeful man. You'll hear how he inserted himself into their lives, the warning signs authorities ignored, and the system that failed to protect the innocent when his rage inevitably flew out of control. Renfrew County, Ontario is an isolated place, and on the roughly four-hour drive north from Toronto, the landscape doesn't just grow less urban, it gets wilder. Halfway there, the hills start getting bigger, the forests denser, farmland gives way to the rocky Canadian shield. It's not exactly Yukon-level remote, but despite sprawling across more than 2,800 square miles, Renfrew County's largest city has a population a little over 14,000. It's the kind of place that sounds just about perfect if you're tired of the rat race. Then again, if you needed help in a hurry, you might find yourself hunkering down as you wait. But Frank and Natalie Warmerdam weren't worried when they moved there in the summer of 2005. Natalie had grown up in Renfrew County, and Frank had been raised rural, too. After living in Toronto for a number of years, they wanted to give a taste of country life to their two young children. Adrian and Valerie, and they found just the place to do it, an expanded log cabin on a private piece of land. It was Natalie's dream property, a home with a wide lawn overlooking the rolling hills, and she paired it with a promising career change. In her mid-30s, Natalie was transitioning out of an unfulfilling career in software development to become a palliative care nurse. It's unquestionable, it takes a special kind of devotion to work with the sick and dying, but Natalie fit the bill perfectly. But only four years later, her dream of a quiet life began tearing at the seams. Her marriage had hit a rough patch, and her and Frank separated, and it wasn't long before Natalie met someone else. Basil Barutsky was in his early 50s, had a shaved head, graying goatee, and had the kind of build you might expect from a former nuclear millwright. He'd made his living servicing industrial machinery, until a car accident left him with four herniated discs. Chronic back pain had forced him onto disability ever since, but it wasn't his health that had brought him into Natalie's world, it was his father's. 
Basil's dad was dying, and the nurse providing him with palliative care was Natalie. Maybe it was the gravity of the situation that had brought them together, or maybe it was common ground. Basil had marital woes of his own. As his stormy marriage of over two decades began to collapse, at the same time as Natalie's. Either way, it wasn't long before their friendship turned romantic, and in almost no time at all, Basil had moved into Natalie's home to live with her and her family. At first, Basil seemed like a positive influence. He made repairs around the aging farmhouse that was drafty in the winter and in need of some TLC. He also taught Valerie, who was in her early teens at the time, to pluck chickens played the father figure when she went out on dates, warning boyfriends to treat her right or else, and to bring her home by 10 p.m. Even Natalie's ex Frank seemed to approve, but beneath the veneer of attentive stepfather and helpful handyman, another darker side to Basil began to emerge, revealing a dangerous and unpredictable man. For one thing, he was a drinker, whose drunken nights often degenerated into screaming matches between him and Natalie, while the kids did their best to wait out the storm. The family was learning Basil had a nasty habit of accusing anyone who disagreed with him of being out to get him. Nothing was ever his fault. Even when he was caught red-handed, like the time he was arrested for drunk driving, he pointed the finger at someone else accusing the police of framing him by rigging the breathalyzer. In fact, blaming others for his own shortcomings was more than just a common theme. It was Basil's defining characteristic, and nowhere was this more apparent than the stories he spun about his messy divorce. He told Natalie about a crazy ex-wife out for blood, a shameless schemer who concocted wild stories of abuse to win custody of the children. He was so convincing, Natalie even advocated on his behalf at Basil's divorce proceedings. But his ex-wife Mary Ann's side of the story could turn your hair white. At a divorce hearing, Basil's own children testified that he'd tried to push his mother out of a moving vehicle, slapped her and pulled her hair and threatened more than once to burn the family home to the ground. Over the years, Marianne had accused Basil of domestic assault on a number of occasions, but each time the charges had been successfully defended or dropped for other reasons, leaving Basil without any convictions. So when Natalie's ex, Frank, decided to hire a private investigator to look into Basil's history, the official results on paper looked a lot cleaner than it actually was. Throughout the proceedings, Natalie learned more about the drama in Basil's past, but at the same time, she wanted to believe that people can change. She also believed in the legal system and convinced herself that if the charges hadn't stuck, there must have been a good reason. Her desire to see the good in people was noble, but where Basil was concerned, it was also extremely dangerous. Despite desperately wanting to see the good in Basil, by the spring of 2012, Natalie couldn't do it anymore. Instead of seeing the charming boyfriend who once showered her with compliments and spruced up her house, she now only saw a suspicious, jealous, manipulative partner 
doing everything he could do to separate her from her friends and family. Natalie tried to break things off, but Basil refused to leave the house, so she began sleeping in the guest room, a prisoner in her own home. Basil ranted about his rights as a common-law partner and demanded half of Natalie's things. Unfortunately for Basil, under Ontario law, Natalie wasn't required to give Basil a penny of her property and naturally refused. In retaliation, Basil threatened to kill the family dog and it wasn't the first time she'd heard him make disturbing threats. During his divorce proceedings with Mary Ann, Basil was worried her testimony might land him in hot water. He told Natalie not to wait for him if he ever went to prison because the first thing he intended to do when he got out was track down Mary Ann and kill her. At the time, she wanted to believe it was all just hyper-masculine bravado, but deep down she knew he meant every word. So when he threatened to kill the family dog, Natalie didn't take it lightly. But the final straw was when she heard Basil threaten to strangle her son Adrian. Basil claimed it was all just a misunderstanding. He called it perfectly reasonable pushback after Adrian antagonized him by walking across a freshly mopped floor. Natalie knew she needed to get away from any man who considered this kind of behavior to be perfectly reasonable. So she went to the police station and pressed charges against Basil for assault, uttering threats and mischief of property. The rest didn't go smoothly. Basil assaulted one of the officers, and once he was safely in a cell, urinated all over the walls and floor. The important thing was, Basil was no longer in the house, and for a while, it seemed like the crisis had been dealt with. That's why the legal system is there, to provide protection and repercussions, checks and balances, at least in theory. Because this is where the difference between Basil's violent history and reality versus his criminal history on paper again reared its ugly head. The number of times he'd previously been reported or accused of domestic violence wasn't admissible in court. So, with such a relatively clean record, prosecutors were willing to offer Basil a sweetheart plea deal. In total, Basil was sentenced to five months in prison, but taking into account credit for time served, while the case was being tried, he would be out again in about 30 days. Natalie coped as best as she could with the news. She started wearing a GPS panic button and installed security cameras. She developed a habit of backing into parking spaces so she could peel out at a moment's notice. Those measures helped her claw back a little peace of mind, but they were hardly foolproof. The isolation of the area meant even if she pushed her panic button, it might take police 40 minutes to arrive. The shotgun she kept under her bed was more reassuring. Unfortunately, Basil was about to get his hands on a weapon of his own. When Basil walked out of jail 30 days later, one of the places he landed was an old farmhouse beside a junkyard. Nearby, under the floorboards of an abandoned motorhome, he found a rusty pump-action shotgun. 
Rooting through the husks of old pickups at the scrapyard, he found a handful of shells. It was a frightening discovery for a man angrier and more embittered than ever, one with fresh stories to tell about lying women and crooked cops to anyone who'd listen. He took his tales of woe to the tiny community of Wilno, where his family had deep roots, about a half-hour's drive away from Natalie's farmhouse. As the oldest Polish settlement in Canada, Wilno is one of the more prominent communities in Renfrew County. Driving the back roads takes you past sheds painted with Polish folk art. As you enter the town, you'll see the log cabins of the Polish Kashab Heritage Museum. The most popular cultural experience, however, is probably the Wilno Tavern, a local institution for over a century, serving up cabbage rolls, pierogies, and pickled herring, first immigrant loggers at the turn of the century, and these days, to the cottagers and campers who flocked to nearby Algonquin Park. When Basil walked through the doors of the Wilno Tavern, his reputation followed him. On the one hand, many of the locals remembered Basil as being the bully in high school, and as an adult, as the guy who once posted a running tally of people he considered enemies at the end of his driveway. To them, he was exactly the kind of person who'd always been bound for trouble. It was best to simply slide down to the other side of the bar and avoid him altogether. But on the other hand, the Barutsky family name was somewhat of an institution in Renfrew County. They were old stock, with a street called Barutsky right next to the tavern itself. Some folks in town instinctively took Basil's side concerning the drama with Natalie. A culture of mind your own business was so deeply rooted in parts of the community, they criticized her for involving the police in private affairs. For employees of the Wilno Tavern, navigating polarizing small-town politics was just in a day's work. Years earlier, one of the tavern servers, Anastasia Cusick, had met Basil and Marianne before things had gone completely south. She became the couple's real estate agent and considered Basil a friend. Not long after returning to Wilno on probation, Basil called Anastasia to see if she wanted to catch up on old times. 34-year-old Anastasia Cusick was an athletic blue-eyed blonde, a few years younger than Natalie, but felt the same pull to Renfrew County. The place suited her personality. She loved hiking the winding woodland trails and spent four years working as a naturalist at Algonquin Park. That's where she refined her knack for identifying birds, but her true passion was horses. Anastasia had collected more than her share of trophies from her equestrian days and was known as a talented rider. But by the end of 2013, Anastasia was experiencing unusually hard times. She'd invested in an old farmhouse that needed quite a bit of fixing up to make it comfortable. The plan was for her and her boyfriend to spruce up the place, but when the couple broke up, she was left to manage the renovations on her own. In addition to a drafty house, she didn't always have enough fuel for her wood-burning stove, so she endured the harsh Canadian winter without much heat. The entire ordeal was becoming an unbearable strain, both practically and financially. Seeing an opportunity to insert himself into Anastasia's life, 
Basil offered his services. A strong, dark-eyed handyman must have seemed like a godsend, and before long, she invited him to move in with her, a move that was in direct violation of the terms of his probation. And like several other violations, it turned out to be consequence-free. Working from the same playbook he'd used on Natalie, Basil described his previous partners as vindictive harpies. This time, the story went that Natalie thought Basil had family money, and when it went to his ex-wife instead, she dropped him like a ton of bricks. Believing the lies was easier because Anastasia was getting out of a rocky relationship herself. Basil lent a sympathetic ear, giving the impression they were healing together. But the honeymoon phase didn't last long, and Basil's darker side became all too apparent. It all started with flashes of violence and volatility when he was drinking. He'd also become enraged if Anastasia wasn't willing to be intimate with him, or if she'd upset him in some other way. On December 30th, 2013, less than a year after his release, Basil's violence escalated to a terrifying degree. During a fight, Basil hauled out Anastasia's childhood possessions and set them on fire. She watched her antique rocking horse burn, while Basil beat her so badly, she begged him to get it over with and kill her. He wrapped his hands around her neck and squeezed, but somehow, Anastasia survived. Apart from the physical trauma, one of the most haunting parts of the ordeal was Basil telling her it wasn't really her who'd set him off. He blamed his actions on another woman he felt had ruined his life. Anastasia had taken the beating by proxy because she happened to be in the same room. Something we can imagine Basil believed was perfectly reasonable. After the horrific assault, Basil was arrested, and when news spread, Natalie got wind of it and contacted Anastasia, encouraging her to testify against him, hoping the case would go further than hers had. And it did, but only by a little. Basil spent the next year in custody and was released on December 27, 2014. When he got out, his probation order included a non-communication clause prohibiting him from going anywhere near Anastasia. But Basil refused to sign it and walked free anyway. To call it a head-scratcher is putting it mildly, but the legal indifference didn't end there. Basil had little regard for any of the terms of his probation, including not showing up for his required anti-violence counseling and driving without a driver's license. And no matter how many times he violated probation, there were never any consequences. Instead of moving back to Wilno, this time Basil moved to another tiny community, Palmer Rapids, about a half hour away. Here, Basil managed to integrate himself with his neighbor, Cheryl Rosler. He cooked for, bought her baked goods, and planted strawberries under a window. And the charming routine worked wonders with Cheryl, more than happy to let Basil borrow her car whenever he needed it. Fortunately for Cheryl, he wasn't interested in her romantically. He had his eyes set on another woman he'd met at the Wilno Tavern, Carol Culloden. Before he'd moved in with Anastasia back in 2013, 
Basil and Carol had gone on a few casual dates together. She owned a cottage nearby on Lake Kaminiskeg and was approaching retirement, but her future had lost some of its luster in the months before meeting Basil when her husband passed away from cancer. She worked as a compensation advisor for the federal government, but it was time to move on. She already tried to get at once, starting a second-hand store with her husband, but the business didn't work out. Despite the personal tragedy, Carol was known as easy to talk to, with a quick sense of humor. She loved a round of cards with friends and puttering around the garden. Now that Basil was out of jail again in 2015, he was looking to rekindle their relationship. But Carol had heard stories about Basil, and this time made it clear his advances were unwanted. Part of Carol's retirement plan depended on the revenue she expected to receive by selling her lakeside cottage. So Basil offered to help fix a few things up, saying he was bored and needed something to do. Reluctantly, Carol agreed. Didn't take long before Basil started showing up unannounced and making repairs on his own. Only the repairs seemed to be doing more harm than good. Once he removed a porch light without Carol's permission, then he relocated the front porch steps without even being asked. He'd show up on weekends when Carol had specifically asked him to stay away because she had friends visiting. He was becoming a real nuisance. Eventually, Carol complained to her neighbors that she suspected he was delaying the process deliberately so she couldn't leave. And then one day, there was a giant red flag. Basil showed up at Carol's permanent home two hours away. She'd never given him that address. He'd copied it off a Christmas card Carol left lying out. Carol's friends told her the obvious. She had a stalker on her hands. Even worse, he was a jealous stalker who seemed to believe that he and Carol were supposed to be more than just friends. He believed she owed it to him for all the work he'd been doing around her cottage. This became all too clear in September 2015 when Basil saw Carol sitting on another man's knee at a party. Soon after, he dug up Carol's flower bed and piled it all in one of Carol's boats, an act of retaliation. Carol called Basil over the phone and tried to set the record straight regarding the nature of their relationship. They were not an item, but as soon as she'd hung up the phone, he responded with a barrage of angry texts. He believed they were meant to be together and refused to accept that Carol could possibly deny it. Over the coming days, Basil continued texting Carol. One minute he was desperate, the next, he was vengeful. In some texts, he called Carol buddy or friend, as if respecting her boundaries. But in others, he referred to them as soulmates. On September 18, 2015, Carol officially retired, a day she'd been looking forward to as long as she could remember. But dealing with Basil was turning into a full-time job of its own. He continued texting her constantly, sending seven or eight messages before receiving a simple curt response from Carol. They were the texts of an unhinged, manipulative, and volatile mind. Finally, Carol told Basil to stop bothering her. The last text message she sent to Basil simply read, Please stop. On September 21st, 
He sent her another 15 messages without receiving a single reply. And one of the last messages he sent her read, You are a cruel, vindictive, self-centered human being. You have no heart and no conscience. The same day, Carol drove to her cottage, only to find that Basil hadn't just been invading her inbox. He'd been back to her property as well. There were more than 20 scraps of wood scattered around the outside of the cottage, with handwritten messages on them. One read, Happy positive retirement. Sorry I'm such an asshole. Another said, I tried to think of everything to make your first day of retirement as enjoyable as possible. Another simply said, Happy, happy, happy. But if Basil believed Carol would see this as some grand romantic gesture, he was sorely mistaken. Instead, she picked up a camera and took photos of everything, wanting to document the extent of her harassment. While she was still at the cottage that day, Basil showed up, and Carol angrily once again tried setting the record straight. They were 100% not a couple. In fact, she was seeing someone else. Carol refused to be intimidated by Basil, but at the same time was more eager than ever to finally sell the cottage. So she called the real estate agent and made an appointment to list it. She also promised her new boyfriend she'd sleep with her phone beside the bed, but wouldn't leave town until she sorted out the listing. Basil went home from the encounter distraught and started drinking with his neighbor. He said he caught his girlfriend with another man, and his neighbor testified she'd never seen him so angry. The next morning, September 22, 2015, Basil woke up early after a disturbed and groggy sleep. He went outside and retrieved the old shotgun and a sandwich bag of shells he'd hidden away in some bushes. According to the terms of his probation, he wasn't even allowed to possess a firearm. Taking the gun and shells, Basil hopped into his neighbor's car and drove off. It was around 8 in the morning when Carol heard the sound of someone pulling up into the driveway of her cottage. When Carol came out to investigate, there he was. When Basil demanded to know why she hated him, she retreated back inside and locked the door. But Basil smashed the glass with his elbow, reaching inside and unlocked the door. Next, he grabbed a length of coaxial cable from the TV lying nearby, then wrapped it around Carol's neck. In her last breaths, Carol repeated, This isn't you, Basil. This isn't you. Basil had just crossed the line from stalker to murderer. After murdering Carol, Basil lit up a cigarette and put the butt out in the sink. He then dumped Carol's purse out onto the table, hoping to find her phone and read her texts, but he wasn't able to unlock it. What had unfolded in Carol's cottage was just the beginning of what was to come. Carol was only one of a handful of women Basil believed had wronged him, and he was determined to take out his vengeance against the rest. That's when he took the keys to Carol's Mazda 3 and drove off to his next destination, the home of Anastasia Cusack in Wilno. Anastasia lived in a quaint two-story home with a white picket fence and red roof. Her sister Ava was upstairs folding laundry 
when she heard a scream. When she rushed down to see what the commotion was, she saw her sister cowering behind the kitchen island. It's Basil, she whispered, but that was already clear from the bulky man staring in the window. Eva rode a surge of adrenaline outside and threatened to kill him if he hurt her sister. But Basil stepped back to the car and retrieved his rusty shotgun. As Eva took off running barefoot to find help, she heard a gunshot behind her. The sound of Basil shooting Anastasia in the neck, committing his second murder before 9 a.m. Eva found a road crew and alerted 911, but Basil was already gone, driving the familiar twisting back roads to a farmhouse where Natalie Warmerdam lived. Natalie was just sitting down to breakfast as Basil walked through the front door. Her 21-year-old son, Adrian, was watching TV in the other room when he heard a scream. Then came the sounds of a frantic chase, and Adrian bolted at the back. From the bushes outside, he called 911, but it came too late. Basil murdered Natalie with a shotgun blast to the neck. Ten minutes later, her phone rang. It was someone in the community who'd heard about the rampage, warning Natalie to be on her guard. Basil's next stop was a sawmill, where he went looking for another person he felt had wronged him. This would-be victim was male, but when Basil couldn't find him, he kept driving. A police tactical unit finally arrested him at a picnic area outside Ottawa. He texted his brother, the guilty have paid, and then of course he added, it's not my fault. In the end, he surrendered peacefully after murdering three innocent women. September 22, 2015 was one of the bleakest days in history of Renfrew County, but not only there, it marks one of the worst incidents of intimate partner violence in Canadian history. We wish we could play the testimonies of Carol Kaluton, Anastasia Cusick, and Natalie Warmerdam, but their voices were silenced forever by Basil Barutsky. Only Basil's account of what had happened that day remains to tell us what happened. What you're about to hear comes from Basil's five-hour interrogation recorded on September 23rd, the day after his rampage. In a drab, claustrophobic room, Basil waited to be interviewed. Paper was taped over the door to block the narrow window. Then Detective Sergeant Kaylee O'Neill entered, a seasoned interrogator who'd just made the four-hour drive from Sudbury to see what he could learn. At first, it seemed as though Basil might stonewall him, and ironically considering the circumstances, the triple murderer was upset because sleeping on the steel bench the night of his arrest was bad for his back. The excuses and complaints he gave were infinite. Well, one of the reasons I'm also here is that I'm sure you're aware of the gravity of the situation and the seriousness of this investigation. I certainly am, given that you've been arrested for these crimes. And there are more, no more serious crimes than murder. I didn't murder anybody. That's right, you killed somebody. Correct? Killed three people, actually. What's the difference between killing and murder? Yes. Yeah, I was shot, not murder. 
Basil didn't deny that he'd killed three people, but took issue with the phrase murder. In his twisted reckoning, murder meant killing the innocent, and to him, his victims were all guilty. The most horrible thing you can do is put an innocent person in jail. An accuser. I would say the most horrible thing you could do is take the life of a woman. That would be the worst thing you could do. I would say. I think there's a lot of people that agree with me. I think you agree with me. You should re-educate this problem. You think killing women is okay? It's good. Don't put words in my mouth. I never said that. I don't need to put words in your mouth. They're coming out just fine. I'm just pointing out some fairly obvious observations. I'm talking about the reality of how things get to where they are. You're the reality is three women are dead. You're you killed them and you're talking about that you were wrong two years ago in some kind of cheesy white domestic assault charge. That's what you hear? That's what you're telling me. Vaguely, you're not really telling me. I'm asking you because I want to know and you don't really want to tell me. You're just kind of dancing around the issue. Really? That's the way to see it, eh? What exactly his victims were guilty of, Basil had a harder time articulating. He talked about stolen backhoes and biblical verses, and anything that could keep him off the subject at hand. Detective Cayley's patience was almost saintly as he tried to take on Basil's perspective in order to tease out the truth, but even he had a limit for excuses. I had no idea what she talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's very evident what I'm talking about. We're, we're way beyond... Listen, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but the question out of my mouth this whole time we've been here was certainly not, did you kill those three girls? Because you did. That's very clear from this investigation and witnesses and evidence. I don't need, I'm not asking that question. That's not a question I need an answer to. That's not what I care about. It's irrelevant. It's a moot point. My only concern was why you did this to them. What could they possibly have done to make you so angry that you decided in September of 2015 to go and kill these three women? That little flash of steel from Kaylee seemed to wake Basil up a bit. He still took no responsibility for his actions, but he did launch into a convoluted persecution fantasy. Basil's meandering responses created the impression there's a complicated history to everything he says, and injustice at the heart of it all. And because it doesn't ever quite add up, you've got to keep listening. He's so completely unable to accept blame, it doesn't even sound like he knows he's lying. It only sounds chilling. Just use it word so small, just like Bagel's life is just a case. Basil's life is a bunch of cases and police officers who maliciously prosecuted. Basil's life is a big case right now. Yes, it is. It's very big. It's very big in the news all across Ontario. And the police made it that way. No, the media made it that way. Actually, you made it that way. You are the one that made it that way. You made the situation, not me. I was minding my own business in Sudbury yesterday. No idea who you were. But here I am in a room talking to you, trying to find out who you are, trying to find a reasonable explanation for why this happened, trying to find some shred of hope that the community is going to hear and have an understanding of why things like this happen. What was done to you if the community so badly that you had to If the community wanted to know, they would start an independent inquiry and look into the past. How did it ever evolve to get to this? 
because Basil Gorichki is a kind, caring, God-fearing, human being. It turned out the failure of the justice system to make several of the previous assault charges stick had actually increased Basil's complex. He wanted his stay in court to prove his innocence beyond a doubt. Yet he seemed to see everything backward. He said he loved Anastasia like a daughter and prevented her from burning the house down, though he was the one who burnt her prized possessions and sent her to the hospital with a merciless beating. Eventually, he seemed to suggest that the murders were necessary to call attention to the injustices that had been done to him. Everything has been taken from me. My job, my health, my family, my dignity. You lost by the police and people that use the police. You, you lost many things. I lost everything. Do you think it's a little bit selfish on your behalf to take those women's lives for you to prove a point? To prove a point? Selfish? I don't even know what you're talking about. Ultimately, Basil's denial boiled down to one chilling statement. I killed them because they were not innocent. They were guilty. I was innocent. From this point, Basil's personal turmoil began to show. Nobody listened to me. Nobody helped me. Nobody. And I was not mine ever. This display of self-pity was the closest Basil ever came to showing remorse. He went on to say that after the murders, he contemplated suicide by cop, planning to brandish a firearm when the cops came to apprehend him, causing the police to open fire on him. But he couldn't bring himself to do it. Carol, you are right over the door. I opened the door and I used to lock the door open. And that was right there. It was like as if it was supposed to be, it was like, and I, it was fast, it was not like, if you think about the distance, I don't know what it is, but it's quite a piece from one place to the other, but it was like, more like bang, 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 because there was no bang, I didn't even got it, I I got the interview ended on a humiliating note when Basil complained about his digestion and believing he was about to soil his pants. He was still ranting about another remembered injustice when Kaylee stood up. The interview was over, and eventually Basil realized it too. Frustrated. Nobody's listening. I hear what have been. I would have shot by a cop a long time ago. How many years? 20 years went by? I never had a thought. All my things were about making right, fix it, help my wife, get the truth to come out. I always believed that someday, maybe, I would be vindicated, even if I only had three days of life where I feel like I'm normally I never deserved one of these things. Not one. 
and there's more. It just goes on and on and on and on. In November 2017, Basil Barutsky was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Anastasia and Natalie and the second-degree murder of Carol. He represented himself at trial, but barely spoke a word. As the judge was giving concluding instructions to the jury, Basil piped up to ask if he'd missed the opportunity to make a statement. He had, though it didn't stop him from continuing to insist he was innocent. Basil won't be eligible for parole for a minimum of 25 years. Since he was convicted at the age of 60, thankfully he'll never get another chance to terrorize Renfrew County. Although gruesome triple murders like Basil's are rare, intimate partner violence isn't. Domestic violence calls are among the most common kind police receive. Spotty cell phone coverage and no public transit makes things even more desperate for rural women, trapped in a bad situation. Access to guns are typically greater in rural areas as well. Basil found his murder weapon literally lying around. After an inquest into the 2015 murders, Renfrew County declared intimate partner violence an epidemic. The declaration was meant to provide better training on how to recognize and address dangerous situations create housing alternatives, and improve services for victims. Its advocates hope similar initiatives will spread across the country. There are positive signs of change in Renfrew County, but Natalie's daughter Valerie Warmerdam didn't stick around to see them. Valerie moved to Ottawa after losing her mother. Though she missed the country life, a little anonymity was what she needed. Here she said, not everyone I walk past on the street knows my entire life story. Valerie's remained a powerful voice for victims, pushing for changes to the system that allowed Basil to flaunt his parole conditions. Because stories like his are the reason countless women are reluctant to bring cases forward. Ultimately, Valerie's viewpoint isn't about punishment or vengeance. She calls prison a band-aid solution which does very little to change violent tendencies. She knows too well, court orders mean nothing to a furious abuser. That's why she puts her best hopes into early intervention programs for offenders. Only by addressing the root cause of violence is there any hope of changing it. In her words, you have to build a system that isn't just for catchy monsters. And now I would like to introduce you to the podcast, Body to Burial. He was desperate and he was going to kill a woman for sure and possibly a child. The bloodstains that were found on his clothes were specific to him being there during the crime. She had a six-year-old, put him outside and set him on fire. 
This is Body to Burial, a new podcast that explores the untold, behind-the-scenes stories from professionals involved with death. There's always the evidence. It's our job to find what that evidence is. I'd gotten the fingerprint off of some of the most strangest places you would never think. Like what? The last one I could think of was a partially torn condom wrapper. That's glamorous. (laughs) We've heard all about the crimes and the killers. Now, we get to hear about the professionals behind the scenes and focus on the good people making a real difference. I wanted to get as close to the mystery as I could. I kind of fell in love with death and what a sacred act it is to be able to care for people. Some of us that are in there because our job is to speak for the victims. I'm Mariah. And I'm Nikki. We are just two regular true crime junkies who decided it was time to see crime from a new perspective. You know, when the police show up or the FBI, a lot of people aren't excited. Our efforts in negotiations are primarily focused on lowering the emotional confrontation that we're in. Typically, that leads us to a solution. It's part science lesson. I've taken fingerprints off the bodies that were burned. As the body begins to burn, they begin to curl in. You, I don't want to grow too hot. No, but... you're not. This is fascinating. Okay. Keep going. The barrel has grooves cut out, and that imparts a spin on the projectile, which makes it more accurate. It's also part philosophy. You can't stop it. The body, no matter what, knows how to die. Ritual is important for marking these parts of a life, and death, of course, is the ultimate. And it's part therapy. Because we're so afraid of death and have a death aversion, we think there's a lot of quiet suffering that happens as a result of that. Join us each week as we tell the stories of the professions and the people in these fascinating fields. Do you keep anything from your cases, like little mementos? Serial killers keep mementos. I don't keep mementos. Body to Burial, a new true crime podcast. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also... By checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening.